Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm Stu Levitan, very happy to have you with us today for a special live pledge drive conversation with WRT's own Frank Emsbach about his new memoir, Troublemaker, Saying No to Power. You may know Frank Emsbach most recently as Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin School for Workers and the co-founder and co-producer of Madison Labor News and the Workers Independent News Service. Those of you of a certain age may recall his service in the 60s and early 70s as chair of the UW Socialist Club, then chair of the National Coordinating Committee to End the War in Vietnam, later chair of the group People Against Racism, and a doctoral candidate in the History Department. But between those two Madison eras of his career, he was in Massachusetts as a member of the industrial working class, a union official, and consultant to state government. In just one three-year period, from 1972 to 75, he moved from doctoral student to senior lab technician to machinist to a laborer working in a foundry. All in all, a pretty amazing life, recounted very well in Troublemaker. I taped a very long conversation with Frank late last fall. We played the first hour on October 31st, but decided not to air the second hour right away, but instead invite Frank to join us in the studio to talk about the book and why your support for the station is both so important and so appreciated. But the book is so interesting and important, not just about the local stories like the Dow protest of 1967, the 1968 anti-war referendum, the Black Study strike of 1969, but also national stories like the rise, fall, and future of industrial unions that we are not going to get to everything today, so do look for an episode three in the not-too-distant future. And for those of you who have not yet bought the book, we have one copy to raffle off. So in addition to whatever thank-you gift you choose when you make your pledge, everyone who calls 608-256-2001 or goes online at wrtfm.org to donate or pledge during the next 50-some minutes will be entered in that drawing. You can also enter by mailing an 8x10 sheet of paper with your name, address, phone number, and the words Madison Bookbeat Troublemaker, and get it to WRT at 118 South Bedford Street, attention Susan, get it to her by Monday, March 6th, and you'll be entered in that drawing, but don't forget, karma counts. It is a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Frank Emsack back to Madison Bookbeat. Well, hi there, everybody, and this is a very, very important day for the station. It's a pledge drive day. I know I'm supposed to talk about the book, but I do want to talk about the station and Stu's show here. I don't think uh, everybody in Madison recognizes how important WRT is, but I get to travel a lot and go to places like Boston and whatnot where there is nothing like this on the air that has the breadth of content, the listeners, the support, the stability, and the ability to outreach to people. So WRT is pretty important, and I urge you to call 608-256-2001. You know, we have, I guess uh, we're supposed to say friends, co-pilots, or whatever, (laughs) uh, as opposed to whoever's taking the pledges. (laughs) But we do want to thank them, and we do urge people to call 256-2001. This is the time to do it. And I think that uh, now we can talk a little bit about the book. Well, right? thank you. And, and since you're so graciously appearing on my show during this uh, membership drive, uh, let's start talking about your show, because after all, that is the Back Porch Radio way. You and Ellen LaLuzerne and some others started Madison Labor Radio in 1998 and then Workers Independent News in 2001. What were your goals and how close do you think you came? Well, our goal was to bring a newscast as opposed to talk or editorials. A newscast focused on labor and working people to a broader audience. The, uh, the, um, the model many people saw at that time was marketplace on NPR. But every day on commercial radio, there's a stock market report on almost every station. And so I said, gee, why isn't there a report on unemployment? Or why isn't there a report on uh, you know, workplace accidents? or something else that would focus on working people since a minority of people own stock and even a smaller minority have anything to say about the stocks they own. So, you know, why are these people doing this? And so the idea was to bring forth the ideas and uh, thoughts and culture of working people to a large commercial network. And I say that because with all respect to what we're doing here and and commitment to it, 
and commitments of Pacifica and other forms of non-commercial radio, including NPR, which incidentally censored worker independent news, uh, 90% of the population neither listens to it nor has access to it. So I thought if we're going to reach people, we have to be on commercial radio and community radio throughout the country. A perfectly normal thing. And the last time anybody did it was around 1950. So we said, okay, let's try it. Technology has changed. It's easier to do it. We can reach people all over the country. It's easy to do editing, relatively speaking. It's easy to distribute because we have the internet. And we can do high-quality news because we had really capable people here from WORT who initially were the basis for our staff and our reporting. So we decided to do it. And how successful do you think it was? I think we showed it could be done. But I think we also showed a very, very ideological and political reluctance, to put it mildly, on the part of organized labor and the progressive uh, organizations to really support an independent labor-focused organization. Again, not talk, uh, not editorials, but real news. And I think that's a real weakness that we still have in the country. And you can see it. How come the working class, the AFL-CIO, the National Education Association, or the Democratic Party, for that matter, will not put a radio show on that costs less than 2% of what usually is spent on the federal elections to put something on eight times a day throughout the whole United States? What's the barrier here? And we came up against those ideological and political barriers pretty early on including, as every single major foundation said, if labor wants a radio show, let them go pay for it. And I thought that was very significant, actually. And why wouldn't labor pay for it? Well, that's the question. I think there's a great paranoia and a feeling upon many, many labor leaders that um, they'll control the message, and they don't want anybody else controlling the message. And if there's no message, there's no message. There's also an inward-looking uh, vision that many, many uh, people have who are in positions of leadership. And I think a fear that if they get too far out there, somebody will beat their brains in. And uh, so the combination of a sort of um, business vision of the union, a, a lack of organizing uh, sort of ethos or strategies, a fear all come together and uh, to do nothing. And then there's the other fear, which is very, I don't know that it's so widely spread, but uh, I think there is a fear of breaking in any way from the Democratic Party and having and being able to say, like, hey, look, yes, there were some uh, minor things made here, but let's take plant closings, for instance. The entire legislation dealing with movement of industry out of a state to another state or to, you know, Mexico or someplace else, we have unemployment insurance, we have training, we have all these other things paid for by us, the people. The companies pay nothing. So why wouldn't we have legislation that says if a company is going to move after getting tax breaks, this, that, and the other thing from the state and the cities, why shouldn't they pay it back? Well, the Democratic Party did not want to do that. I don't want to get into all of that because I headed an agency that directly took on this issue in Massachusetts, and I don't head it anymore. So the fact of the matter is that there was resistance to this. And so what would happen if you had a news program that said, hey, why don't we go after the companies? Which, which, <laughs> which, which is a perfect segue back to the fact that WRT is one of those radio stations that, that will put news that's like right. that on there, that will put Madison Labor Radio on there. And that's one of the reasons why we are appealing to the, the listeners to, re, to remind them how important WRT is to their quality of life, their quality of economic life, their quality of emotional, spiritual life, their quality of physical life. What, what have you seen, Frank, in terms of the local impact of having something like Madison Labor Radio on WORT? I think what we have seen here in town uh, is that people get some sense that there's movement going on. There's, they're not alone. There's a sense of community. We get calls from people who want to organize. Um, when the thing with noodles happened, we were able to, people may remember, the staff at noodles walked out one afternoon and said, it's need, not greed. 
young people and older people working there. Well, we got that on the radio at a half an hour later because somebody in town bumped into somebody on the bus who called us. Well, all of a sudden, this thing where the people just dispersed, people heard about it. People who are working in some of these places heard about it. We were a very popular show when the UAW had a plant in Janesville. They made whatever, big station wagons down there. But uh, we used to get a lot of support and calls from the second shift workers in that plant. And the station got support from them, as a matter of fact. Uh, And one of the problems, that one of the real challenges we have is that as places like that have disappeared, we've got to rebuild that support amongst working people. And I think that's part of what we're trying to do with Worker Independent News, is show, or, or I shouldn't say that anymore, after 15 years of saying it, you get used to it. But Madison Labor Radio, our objective is to speak directly to the interests and concerns of working people, broadly used. The word working people, most of us work. And to speak directly to that, not to the stock market. And the only place that we're going to get support, we meaning WRT, to do that is from the people we're speaking with. And that is why we are speaking to you today, and that is why we hope we will hear from you today by giving us a call at 608-256-2001. I believe it is extension 1. We'll take you right to our phone answers, and we want to thank Ricky and Patrick. Amy is out there in the front lobby as the receptionist. We appreciate all their work. We appreciate Teddy Wedgers giving us some food so we can sustain the body as we uh, try and sustain the radio station. We do have somebody to thank uh, getting us off to a really good start. We have Timothy. Uh, from Mount Horeb. So, so the, the, the far suburbs have been heard from. Timothy's favorite shows are Blues Cruise, The Rattlesnake Shake, and Musica Antiqua. Yeah, that's a pretty good uh, variety of, of music. That's one of the great... There's so many great things about WRT. One is the musical variety, and of course the other is the, the news and talk. So we do thank Timothy, and we hope that you will join Timothy uh, by giving us a call or going online to wortfm.org. We're talking with Frank Emsbach. His book is Troublemaker, Saying No to Power. It's A good chunk of it is about your time in Madison. A good chunk of it is about your time in Massachusetts. Uh, we talked in the earlier episode about your father and the role he played as leader of the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers Union, the UE. His life was so, his life and career were so foundational to yours that I think we need to have a little bit of a recap. So tell us a bit about your father, particularly his union experience and his politics. Okay. Well, my father was a first-generation Hungarian. His, his, his parents uh, came to the United States around 1906, 1907, and moved to Schenectady, New York, where my grandfather got a job at General Electric, as did ultimately my uncles, my father's brothers, and my grandmother for a while. So the entire family worked there at GE. My father came, went to work there when he was 16 as an apprentice, uh, eventually finished the apprenticeship as a tool and die maker and had a consciousness. The family was apparently a class conscious family upon arrival <laughs> um, because the rumor is that one reason they left Hungary in such a rush was that uh, my grandfather had been involved in a strike on the Austro-Hungarian railroads. He was an industrial blacksmith. In any event, my father uh, went to Union College partially on a GE loan and scholarship and then went to Brown University to study philosophy. Now, what's he doing at Brown University as a first-generation Hungarian, a Hungarian speaker, and English, of course, studying philosophy? Well, what's he was studying, as it turned out, uh, materialist philosophy, Epicurus, I discovered (laughs) about four years ago. And all of a sudden, in 1933 or so, he leaves Brown University and winds up in Camden, New Jersey at RCA, which was then owned by GE, making TVs and beginning to organize a union. Well, that's a very strange move. There are no records and no documents as to why, but obviously he he would have had to be in touch with other people, radical people, probably the Communist Party. I think that's pretty clear in the documents we can find, or at least... Uh, assume, who were interested in organizing the unorganized and particularly the centrality that everybody understood that was the General Electric Company at that time, right up until about 10 years ago. So 
besides, the whole family was a GE. So it was a perfectly natural thing for him, in his view, to go try to use his intelligence and ability to organize fellow workers. And that's what he spent the rest of his life doing. So the key to organizing the electrical industry, which was at that time General Electric, Westinghouse, Alice Chalmers, a lot of people, a huge industry, a new industry, new tech at that time, right? Think of GE, light bulbs, turbines, jet engines, the whole shebang, um, was organizing the General Electric Company, and in particular, organizing their four largest plants, one of which was Lynn, Massachusetts, another was Schenectady, New York, a third one was in Erie, Pennsylvania, and so forth. And so that is what a group of people Communists and other militants said, we got to do. And uh, that's what they did. And organized the United Electrical Workers on a basis that was different than most of the other industrial unions, in that they had a very, very strong commitment to political independence. The leaders could be anybody. And in fact, there were public communists elected as leaders of large districts of that union. And the union's position was, the workers make this decision, not the government, not the company, not anybody else. And that was a very, very strong democratic sense in that union. And that's partially what distinguished the UE and made it a target after World War II. And how often did your industrial career intersect with his after the fact? Well, I mean, he passed away in 1962, and uh, my industrial career began maybe 10 years later. So I would say it didn't intersect in that way, but every place I went, everybody knew the name. I mean, when I got a job at the United Shoe Machine Company as a machinist, which was a UE factory in Beverly, Massachusetts, I mean, I didn't even get in the door. Uh, there were 600 people there, and probably by the time I got to my machine, 599 of them said, what's he doing here? And uh, three or four years later, when I got hired at General Electric, um, there was, it was pretty complicated as a blacklist. I don't want to, we can talk about that later. But in any event, when I walked in the door, a third of the people in the machine shop had already been laid off from United Shoe. So they were all, hi, how are you doing? You know, everybody else in the building, about a thousand people, anybody who was over 40 or 45 at that point and who had been there when the UE and the IUE were fighting it out as to who was going to continue representing them, everybody knew the name. So, you know, it was like a family. And in fact, it was treated like that. There were a lot of left-wing people who went to work at General Electric or, or General Motors. But um, those of us who had family there, Carol Travis was another person, our father, Bob Travis, was a great leader in Flint, Michigan. When she went to work in LaGrange, Illinois, everybody knew who she was, right? And treated her not as an outsider as much. And the same thing happened to me. Family, independence, and technology are three words. We're, we're talking with Frank Emsbach. His book is Troublemaker, Saying No to Power. Uh, family, independence, and technology are also three words I associate with WORT, uh, especially important now that we are in, in our member uh, membership drive and hoping to, to have folks give us a call at 608-256-2001 or go online to WORTFM.org. And we have another person to thank, our friend David Poklankoski. Uh from uh, the east side of Madison, has made a, a generous donation. We appreciate his support. Uh, his three favorite shows are BookBeat, well, thank you, David, News and Music Diversity. So we do thank David, and we uh, hope that you'll follow his lead uh, and, and give us a call or go online. Uh, we, we understand how WRT and the listenership are a family. We understand the importance of the independence of WRT, but there's also a bit of technology that we need to share with you. You, you may recall that when we came to you on some previous uh, membership drives, we talked about the importance of getting these new soundboards uh, because, you know, we're a radio station. We need soundboards are like a pretty important part of the of the. Uh, the, the, our life here, and we 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 projected the cost. We thought, okay, and we did some fundraising, and we got it covered. We raised enough money for the for the soundboards. Well, wouldn't you know it? 
supply chain dynamics took over and inflation took over. And it turns out that the amount of money we raised for the soundboard, which was good enough for then, is not quite good enough for now. So, yes, we are still raising money for those soundboards and and some technological peripherals. Um, We really we know this is something this is a technological improvement that's going to directly affect your listening experience. So it is what uh, consensus bargaining, which, which Frank, you have some experience in, what consensus bargaining would call a win-win situation. If you help us buy those soundboards, you will have a better listening experience. So uh, we see no reason for you uh, not to give us a call at 256-2001. Here's the thing. Here's what the soundboard does. We're talking to microphones. You're listening to it on the air or however you're listening to it. Without the soundboard, you wouldn't hear us. That's as simple as that. It's the translation and uh, device that allows these sound waves when you're speaking to be turned into radio waves so you can hear it through your loudspeaker or whatever whatever way you're listening to it. So the soundboard is the beating technological heart of this place and uh, it's 40 years old. Now, those of you who may be over 40, <laughs> you know, and thinking about your heart. Think about this heart right here. 608-256-2001. Make our hearts beat faster and better. And as you may have gathered, we have two people in the room who are over 40 and occasionally worry about their hearts, or at least are cognizant of the state of their hearts. So make our hearts beat be calmer and faster and smoother and and do give us a call speaking of and and that was a perfect example of why a guy like frank emsbach is so important because he cuts through all the all the highfalutin words and and gets right to the nitty-gritty of why of how something works and why something works and your undergraduate degree was in zoology you also know how to read blueprints which means that Unlike a lot of graduate students, you actually know how to make things and do things, not just read and write and think and talk. Did that give you a different perspective from the rest of your graduate student cohort? Yes. The science, the science in particular, if we're talking about the left in Madison in the 60s and 70s, science was an outlier. There were only a few of us involved in science, and it was considered to be some kind of magic by most of the rest of the left here. But if we're talking about our world today, you'd have to understand what's really making it happen. And it is more than just um, writing and speaking, and particularly if you're thinking about Marx, who was very much involved in science of his time and understanding science of his time. There is a materialist aspect to thinking. Now, if you actually do something, then you have a much better sense of what I would call agency. And the whole point about the working class is the working class creates wealth, and therefore it's theirs maybe, and you have the ability to say, hey, I made that. How come I'm not making any money off it? It's much more difficult uh, actually with intellectual work because it's not clear sometimes where the money comes from or how the wealth is produced. But I think that there is definitely there. However, there's definitely a difference in perspective. When you can see... Uh, my work in biology here was, uh, zoology as I called it, was what is now molecular biology. And at that time, in the early 60s, the DNA, the thing we all talk about, was just discovered. And this laboratory that I worked in here was one of the ones that helped bring that science to reality. And so you could see in a microscope, because we crush these fruit flies which have big chromosomes, uh, you could actually see the replication the making of genes and chromosomes. You could understand it, you could see it visually. My job is to take pictures of them, some of which were actually published, actually, uh, when I was an undergraduate. So, but, but, you know, so you could actually see how life worked. Here in Madison, I had the chance, when I was trying to get my PhD, because I knew I'd have trouble getting a job <laughs> afterwards, which was absolutely true, uh, I went to MATC at night uh, to the machine shop class. And it was uh, very, very illuminating because some of my book is about uh, that work, but some of my dissertation was about the organization of the unorganized General Electric, the fights, the political fights within the unions. But it would help me a great deal to actually run some of these machines over there at MATC, 
which at that time was on Commercial Avenue, to actually see this stuff and feel it. Well, let's talk a bit about your academic career, particularly your doctoral thesis on the breakup of the CIO, which today would refer to a chief information officer, but back then was the Congress of Industrial Organizations. First, how much did your thesis upend the accepted wisdom about the creation and breakup of the CIO? It was uh, polar opposite, fundamentally. <laughs> the The line uh, was that the decent people in the labor movement threw out the communists, cleansed the CIO, and allowed the labor movement to move forward to better and bigger and better things. That was the basic line, and that the communists somehow were a pox on the working class. And uh, uh, what it turns out to be, uh, nobody, nobody involved in the labor movement, including the people who threw out the communists, uh, believed that. That's for sure. I interviewed enough of them and met some of them personally, some of whom apologized for it, like some of the leaders of the Association of Catholic Trade Unions. Father, at that time, uh, Rice, um, uh, apologized to me personally, saying the biggest mistake of his life was to go after the UE and the Reds in Pittsburgh. So in any event, um, the, the, I said, well, what, what do the documents say? What are these people doing here? Was anybody thrown out because they were communists? Did they care? What was, what was the precipitating factor here? Because there were communists at the formation of every single major CIO union. So what happened? You know, and well, it turns out what happened was the election of 1946 on the Taft-Hartley Act, and a way then for the right wing to use the federal government to go after the left, which they, there had been civil war from the inception of these unions. And secondly, what you had was the left wing in 1948 saying we should break from the Democratic Party. And almost every single one of the expulsions of local unions from labor councils was over the issue of whether or not they could support Henry Wallace, who was running for president. And the CIO took the position, we have CIO policy, and if you violate CIO policy, we'll throw you out. And then they said, and you're all communists. But they were thrown out because of the political independence issue. And then the communist business was used to do it. Then later, you had the intervention of the federal government and you had the intervention of the federal government with the support, ultimately, of the leadership of the labor movement to say that if you're a red, you can't be a union officer. And if you sign this affidavit saying you're no longer a red and we can prove you were a red, we're going to arrest you for perjury, which is what happened to my family. And then my father's position was, wait a second. First of all, it doesn't matter whether anybody belongs to anything. We have a constitution in this country and one of those things is, you know, freedom of association. And that, therefore, under the First Amendment, freedom of speech and freedom of association, I have a right to be in anything. And you don't have a right to do anything bad to me, put me in jail, destroy the union, and so on and so forth, and eventually won that case. As Bob Dylan once sang, without freedom of speech, I might be in the swamp. That's right. And we are talking with Frank Emsbach. Neither of us are in the swamp. We are in the studio at 118 South Bedford Street, uh, talking a bit about Frank's book, Troublemaker, Saying No to Power, but also reminding you how important WRT is to your daily diet of independent media, of news gathering, uh, and reminding you that we get, oh, the numbers are really high. The numbers, we're talking like 76% of our fundraising comes, uh, of our budget comes from listeners like you. Yes, listeners just like you. Not like anybody else, just like you, which is why we are certainly hoping that you will give us a call at 256-2001. Go online to wortfm.org. We do have some nice uh, winter fundraising thank you gifts. We know that most people don't really pledge for the don't don't donate or pledge for the 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 gifts and thank uh, 
Uh, I think, and I know David did, did, forswore his gift, um, but we do have some wonderful gifts. We've got a, a sticker set. We've got this beautiful new uh, design uh, that comes both as a sticker and as an embroidered patch. We've got, you want to talk about independent free-thinking media, The Progressive Magazine. You can get a year subscription at The Progressive Magazine uh, at the $47 level. You can get Ben Sidron's book, Talking Jazz. And for uh, this show alone, you can also get a copy of my book, Madison, the Illustrated sesquicentennial history volume one uh, right after the show i'm going to go back home and start working on volume two you can get that or a mindless minion membership card uh, those are at the 47 dollar level at the 60 dollar level you get a couple of those patches and then they've got a beautiful new long sleeve t-shirt at the hundred dollar level it comes in black sort of a four an olive green and a slate blue and it's got that new patch uh, design oh my goodness there's stuff on the other side the W-O-R-T-R-E-I tote bag. That's at 120. The W-R-T retro airline bag. That is a... Everyone loves those. We've got a House of Marley wart imprinted headphones and wireless speakers. So all your... Um, all your thank you gifts. You can you can get your gifts for the next whatever holiday you celebrate. We've got gifts for you. Uh, we are still, uh, unfortunately, because of you know this whole COVID thing, we're still closed. The station is still closed, but don't don't worry. We will take care of getting it to you. All you have to do is give us a call at 608-256-2001 or go online to wrtfm.org, and uh, our phone answers will walk you through that entire process. And of course. If you want to be a true hero of the revolution, you be, you can become, um, I, I know the term used to be evergreen donor. I'm not sure yeah, if it's... Yeah, evergreen is still there. It's still but there. You know, maybe I should throw something in the Do pot that. here, yeah. a real favor. Okay. I have one of the original W-O-R-T, glow-in-the-dark shirts, T-shirts. Oh, those are great. And for $500, <laughs> for $500, I'll give you... This T-shirt. So, so make sure you t- when when Ricky or Patrick answer the phone, uh, make sure you tell them that you want that special T-shirt that uh, w- will be a big hit at your next. Uh, <laughs> so, if you're ever visiting Aaron Rodgers in his lights out man cave, you can like blow his mind by, by by glowing in the dark. Uh, let's but go. I, I just want to say yeah. one thing: how important this station is yeah. for real. We really do need your assistance. The COVID thing hurt. The, the change in the whole city has affected WORT. There's a change in the people who live here, and a lot of people have not heard WORT yet. And for us, we want to get out to here. We want those people to be able to hear us. And in order to do that, we have to have good technology. We have to have a good broadcast. And we have to be on the air so people can hear us. And that's where you come in, that 256-2001. We need to hear from you so that others can hear from us. Sort of a symbiotic relationship. I want to go back to your doctoral thesis, and it also loops in your father, uh, the legacy of your father, because what it took to actually get your doctorate, your account in your book is both harrowing and a little horrifying. You spent months revising your thesis under the direction of uh, Professor John Milton Cooper, who I think is a good guy. And then just when you're ready for your defense of your dissertation, the history department pulls a fast one on you and adds Professor Jack Barbash, who isn't even from the history department, he's from the economics department, to your thesis review committee. First, why were you concerned about Professor Barbash being on that committee? And what did he do to justify those concerns? Well, I was concerned that uh, for a couple of reasons. First, Jack had been one of the university negotiators against our union when we tried to organize it in 1963. Uh, so that didn't make me feel any better. But mostly, one of the people who was the most virulent in terms of attacking the left and attacking the UE was Hubert Humphrey. And Jack was one of the investigators on Hubert Humphrey's Senate Internal Security Subcommittee. And one of the targets not only was the UE, but was our family personally. And so I sort of felt that uh, how could the university put somebody on a thesis committee for me when part of his job during many years was to target the family and put them in jail? So I sort of thought that that was, uh, (laughs) you know, a little bit weird. And the fact that I was told two days before this was going to happen was even crazier because obviously, unless he suddenly read it and said speed reading, he wouldn't have ever read the thing either. 
So I went to Professor Rice here, who was at that time head of the ACLU and a law professor, and said, uh, I think I'm going to have big trouble here, and I think we're going to have to prepare to figure out what to do. Because I said, there's nothing, I don't know what they're going to do here, but whatever it is, this can't be good news. Because I had already spoken to everybody on the committee, that, and everybody had said, don't worry, it was a big scandal the last time, we shouldn't have done what we did, uh, you're going to get the PhD, don't worry about it, and then bam. So uh, somebody did something. Now, I don't know who, but, but Jack was suddenly on the committee. Well, well tell us what BAM meant. Tell us, tell us how that played out. It played out this way. When, uh, when you're uh, getting your PhD and you're having your final interview there, there's a warrant that is a piece of paper passed around saying, yes, I'm in the room, and yes, I examine this guy. And you have to have five people to sign it, uh, the five professors here normally. So we're going around the room, and it gets to Jack, and he puts the paper down on the table and his pen, and he says, uh, I'm not going to sign this. And so the chairman of the department, uh, I think Bill Cronin Sr. at the time says, uh, Jack, stop fooling around here. Just sign the thing. Let's get out of here. I don't think they even wanted to ask any questions, quite honestly, but it didn't matter. And he says, no, not until Frank answers the question. And I said, I don't believe this. And he said, I want to know, have you, have you ever been or were you, whatever, a communist? And I said, you got to be kidding. One of the other professors said, this is ridiculous. Jack says, unless he answers that question, I'm not going to sign it. I said, uh, you've got to be kidding. I said, I wouldn't lower myself and insult my family or insult everybody else by answering a question like that. At which point, that was the end of the exam. I said, well, too bad, no PhD. He didn't sign it. Everybody walked out. Uh, I was a little astounded, but obviously not surprised since I had already gone. And so uh, I, with, with uh, Professor Rice, attempted at that point to uh, reach to the university and then uh, getting nowhere, uh, began preparations to get an injunction against the University of Wisconsin that nobody would get a PhD in that January uh, event, you know, January graduation, unless I got mine. And so we prepared papers to that effect. I left town to go take a job in Boston. And about a week and a half later, I got a call from the university saying that, uh, all is forgiven. What did I do? But uh, <laughs> you'll get your PhD. And I said, when it arrives, we'll withdraw the suit. But uh, I don't believe you people. And uh, Rice called me up and he says, don't worry, I've got it. And then eventually I have that little red book like everybody else now. That seems borderline academic misconduct on Barbash's part. <laughs> of course. I mean, I mean, but I, you know, everybody is shocked at this. Here's my vision of the university. Not once in the 50s or the 60s did the faculty of the University of Wisconsin stand up to anything. They voted to support the administration during the black student strike. They voted to support the administration whenever there was an issue about the war in Vietnam, the Dow strike, or anything else. So I did not see the university as an institution, as coming forward and saying, what a great thing, you know, people are standing up and doing something. The first response when we tried to organize undergraduates, my, to me, in 1963, now we're trying to, I'm getting a 75 cents an hour. You know, I had work to go to school. My father had passed away. It was my problem now. And the federal minimum wage was a buck and a quarter. So we start organizing union. What is the first thing the university does? They tell me if we keep doing this, they're going to expel me. Not they're going to raise the wages. And it was only because I had another really high-powered lawyer there in the, in the law school, a guy named Nathan Feinsinger, who was the arbitrator between GM and the UAW, their most prominent faculty member, calling up the president and saying, I don't think you understand this. This is a National Labor Relations Board protected activity and I'm going to go after you if you expel this guy. At which point, they forgot about that. But uh, it isn't because the university had this great liberal vision of labor unions and students mobilizing. It never once, institutionally, I'm not saying that we couldn't win a battle here or there, but the institution itself did not distinguish itself, in my view, uh, in any of these regards, along with the biological warfare, uh, the... Um, Experiments going on in Walnut Street there and the Bardeen Medical Labs, which we found out about, 
or in the leaflet I put out a few years later, who's who in the CIA, a list of the faculty members who neglected to mention that to their students, of which there were about 20 here, including the chairman of the French department. My wife was fired over other activities that I did, and she was finally able to get a job through something else. So the point is that my experience here, and I think the experience of a lot of people, was that institutionally there's a problem. Institutionally, I think we've worked through most of our problems here at WRT. You know, we occasionally have some interesting relation, you know, some interesting issues to to attend to. But I think, you know, I've been on the board for several years, and I, th- I think that we're we got the wind to our back now. We, you know, we've we've come through some difficult periods. Uh, we're we're not. We're not here asking for money merely to survive. We're asking for continued support to continue to thrive by getting these sound boards, by getting, by setting up some uh, internships for BIPOC and other uh, disadvantaged students to to do things that are taking us to the next level. And uh, that's why we come to you every so often and remind you of how important WORT is to your listening diet. Now, now just stop for just stop and think about it for a second, friends. When was the last time, have you ever heard a conversation with as many interesting bits of new information about the relationship of man and machine and man and man and union and management and, and capital and labor and the university and the students as you've been hearing from Frank, from Frank Emspach in just these last 45 minutes or so? No, this is all new stuff to you. This is stuff that, A, you're going to enjoy when you read in his book, Troublemaker, Saying No to Power, which... You can get by, uh, you'll be entered into that uh, drawing if you give us a pledge or or make a donation during the next uh, 10 or 12 minutes. All you got to do is give us a call at 256-2001 or go online to wrtfm.org. But we're trying to fulfill that mission of independence and free thinking. Uh, Frank, you mentioned earlier uh, in the hour how you've lived in various places and, and been involved in various organizing how how many other stations are there in America like WRT doing this kind of work of bringing new thought and, and new commentary to the airwaves? Well, there's a lot of community radio stations in the United States, but when you take a look at the breadth of WRT and its strength financially and politically and in terms of the volunteers, very few. You have WRT here in Madison. You have a station in Washington, D.C., one in Texas, and two in California, the, the, the heart of the Pacifica network, and there's a few other community stations, but there are very, very few that are of this size, have this kind of audience, this kind of diversity, and particularly in terms of music and politics, very, very few. And so this is unique in that regard. And I think it's deserving of support because this is the only place in town that you can be assured that your voice can get on the air sooner or later, whoever you are or whatever you're talking about in terms of progressive ideas, in terms of racism, in terms of sexism, and so forth. This is it. And I I believe this is such an important aspect of building a democracy in this country. From my point of view, my time has been to build a democratic society. And in my view, that meant a strong labor movement. But there are other aspects to this, including a strong media, including the ability of people to voice their own interests in their own way, in their own style. And WORT provides that avenue for people. And very, very very few other places do that. I mean, just think if we had the market reach of, oh, let's say, you know, that that, that evil cable TV. I mean, th- what you're trying to do with Mass and Labor Radio and, and Worker Independent News of getting that information into the daily media diet, that's the long game. That's the game you have to play to change society. So well, you, you asked about that earlier. Yeah. Let me just say a couple of things about when, because I Worker Independent yeah. News. We are off the air, and we went broke around 2017. But one of the things that happened in the middle of all this is that we were on the largest station in the United States, 1010 Winds in New York City, at 9.01 in the morning, because it was cheaper than at 9 o'clock or 8.59, as it turns out, by half. Well, what did that cost us or our sponsors? $800 a minute is what it costs us. And um, who paid for it? But the building trades in New York City, most of the unions, everybody chipped in. 
uh, for four years, four days a week. That's a lot of money, but it's nothing compared to what the corporations are putting in. And uh, but so we're reaching in that one minute or two minutes or three minutes, depending on what we had, depending on the day, uh, of somewhere between a quarter of a million and a half a million people in that one period of time. So if we're talking about contesting for power here in this country, we have to give some thought to how we as progressive people are going to reach millions of people. And we can't do it without content, and the content comes from places like WORT because it brings in all kinds of people. So it's, it's, a, it's a lesson in the long game, and uh, we, we do have uh, a web pledge to thank. Can't tell you who. I can tell you it's a male who goes by the pronoun. No, I can't even tell you that. I can tell you it's someone who uses the pronoun he. But the, the person is anonymous. They've made a donation. We appreciate it. And you can do so, too, at uh, wrtfm.org or, go, or give us a call at 608-256-2001. We've got just a couple of minutes left, and I guarantee you we, we will be replaying th- that second hour with Frank because there's a whole lot of stuff we're not going to get to today. But I'm going to go to something that happened 40, 53 years ago this month, that was the Black, the black Studies strike. That started with a symposium on the campus called Black Revolution to What Ends. You were on a panel uh, representing the People Against Racism, a panel on racism in Madison with Eugene Parks uh, of Blessed Memory. What do you remember about that panel and that uh, symposium? Well, what I remember is that people didn't really want to talk about racism in Madison. The um, uh, Gene uh, was running for alderman, I think, <coughs> excuse me, he'd just been elected in April of 1968. No, he was, he was elected, he was about to be elected in April of 69. 69, okay. Yeah, yeah. But whatever it is, part of it was the registration, everything that had been done as part of the movement against the war in 1968 and the referendum and everything else. The point is, he was the first black alderman. The issue at the time was what we saw was increasing housing segregation in Madison. And uh, that was true. They tore down the one integrate one of the few integrated neighborhoods was the Greenbush, which was south of Regent Street. It's, uh, it's gone. It was literally a vacant lot when the city finished the redevelopment. Bingo. All gone. And so what people like me saw was a couple of different things. First, we saw on the University of Wisconsin, which was our area of concentration, almost no black students. That was one aspect of racism in Madison. Another was the clearing of integrated neighborhoods. A third was the lack of housing and jobs. And then just outright forms of discrimination, you know, the most uh, gross kinds of, of, of treatment of people. So we saw a disparate treatment in many, many aspects. And that particular panel was to talk about what is Madison like. And um, so Gene was talking about the South Side and the neighborhood down there. And I was talking about the university and the relationship between housing and costs and so on and so forth, stuff like that. I don't remember what the other people were talking about. Um, so, uh, but to have it at all was a big deal. Uh, because most of the panel was talking about more, I think, intellectual things or the South or something else. And we're talking about life right here uh, in, in Madison, Wisconsin. Were you aware at the time how what would b- emerge as the Black Study Strike was bubbling underneath everything? Because one of the prof- one of the speakers there was a professor from San Francisco State named Nathan Hare, who really, you know, put the... Uh, put the spirit of, of the Lord into uh, uh, <clears throat> Willie Edwards and, and some other folks and, and really jump-started the, the Black Study Strike. Were you aware of how that was bubbling up and about to emerge? Well, I had been involved in, the, in the, uh, the movement, as we put it, for some years at that point. And my involvement wasn't at the top level in the civil rights movement, but I was um, meeting with people. Let me put it this way. The strongest support that we had initially for the anti-war movement in terms of our organization was in Mississippi, okay? Not Long Island, but Mississippi. The largest number of people subscribing to our newspaper was in Mississippi. So I had contacts with people in the black community who were active, who were against the war, who were against racism, who would put together 
the whole, all the dots here, the economy, racism, the war, and we're working on those issues. So we were in touch with people like that. I was in touch with people like that, and, and not only here, but all over. So yes, in that sense, I was certainly aware that something was going on. No question about that. And we have uh, someone else to thank. As we're, we're nearing the end, so if you want to get in on uh, supporting Madison Bookbeat and, and showing your support for the kind of work that Frank Emsbach has been doing all his life, now is the time to do so. We want to thank Charles uh, for uh, making a pledge. We appreciate uh, Charles's support. Uh, uh, Charles got himself uh, uh, some nice uh, thank you gifts, and we do appreciate uh, Charles' support. Again, 256-2001, that's in the 608 area code, and uh, or WORTFM.org. We're going to have to—we have so much stuff— about Frank's book, Troublemaker, that we have not gotten to. We've, we've touched on racism. We've touched on corporate relations. We've touched on union organizing. We've touched on the university. Uh, we're going we're gonna to play that full second hour at some point, uh, but we have to spend the last couple of minutes reminding people of that if they want more shows like Madison Labor Radio and Madison Bookbeat and all the music and a public affair and democracy now, that now is the time for you to show your support by giving us a call. We've got those great thank you gifts, so I told you what they are. Your phone answers, uh, uh, Ricky and Patrick can give you more details. Uh, but we really do need to hear from you. You hear from us throughout the year. Now is one of the few times we... Now, I don't want to say now is one of the few times we need to hear from you because that is one of the hallmarks of WRT is that we do hear from our listeners all the time. We, we put listeners on the air with the access hour. We take phone calls. We, we, we maintain that log. The WART listenership is an active listenership. It is an interactive relationship between... Th- WRT and you, the listener, and we so appreciate what you have done for us. For we're getting well nigh on fifty years. Can can you think of it, Frank? Fifty. Nineteen seventy-five. December nineteen seventy-five. We're getting close to the golden jubilee. Well, at that time, in preparation for the golden jubilee, let's see some of the gold. That's what we need to do here. Two five six two thousand one to allow us to get to that golden jubilee. We'd like to be there. All of us would like to be there. But 256-2001 will get us there. And in the last 54 seconds, 53 seconds, we'd like to hear from somebody. 256-2001. Yeah, we've had a a great conversation. We've touched on so many important topics. And I, I really have to say, Frank, the book Troublemaker, Saying No to Power, has so much great information that is so relevant to the WRT listenership that uh, I know that people have appreciated uh, the two conversations we've had with you, and we know that they will show their support. Oh, we do have one more uh, thank you to thank. We want to thank Therese from the west side of Madison for making a generous uh, contribution. We appreciate uh, her support. Uh, her favorite shows are Madison Bookbeat. We appreciate that. The Wednesday Evening News and uh, and uh, uh, oh, uh, Back to the Country. So we appreciate that. You are listening to, uh, on behalf of Engineer Andrew Thomas and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for listening. Now, please stay tuned for Alex Walding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to 89.9 WORT, Madison, Wisconsin. Listener-supported community radio.